A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. So interestingly, this is the uh, one of only 14 psalms that actually have an introductory title. So I know what you're thinking is you're saying, well, in my Bible, every psalm has a title above it. Yes, you're right. Every song of, uh, has a title above it. This is one of 14 that actually has it in the psalm itself. So yours might say, save me, O God, as your title above it. But in the actual psalm, it says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, as the title of the psalm. There's only 14 of those in Scripture and and. They are given to us because they attach themselves specifically to events to which um, was going on uh, as uh, David uh, is uh, writing these psalms or he's thinking about. And so it is attached specifically to an historical episode in his life, um, which most you'll read about mostly in Second uh, Samuel, f- starting in uh, basically 15 and going through 18 or so. Um, and so that, that title, A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son, kind of really gives us the context of what is causing the grief in David and then how David responds to it in prayer and what that allows him to experience and then therefore become as he uh, prays. So some background information, uh, because it is taken from an historical event, um, I'm going to tell you a bit about Israel, Saul, David, and then his children, and uh, the, his time as king. And so uh, Israel um, doesn't like where they're at in their uh, life at, at this point. And, well, not at this point, but earlier in their, their point. And um, what they cry out to God for is they say, God, look, give us a king like all the other nations around us have. Give us that, uh, that leader that everybody else has an earthly leader here so that we can have the prosperity, we can have the peace that they have in Israel's eyes as they perceive it. And uh, God uh, gives them as they ask, and he gives them Saul as their first king. Saul uh, is a failure as a leader. He sins. He leads them astray. Um, His anointing is removed from him, and uh, the new anointing is placed on David. And David slowly rises up and becomes uh, king, of Israel, and uh, once he is placed uh, in, in that position of king, he leads Israel to some military victories that allow them to establish Jerusalem as the capital of all of Israel. Um, the, uh, it's centralized there, and uh, it gives them a, a sort of a comfort in that. He also uh, returns the Ark of the Covenant, returns the Ark to uh, Jerusalem, uh, or he brings the Ark to Jerusalem and establish, further establishes uh, Jerusalem as the centralized social, political, and spiritual center of, of Israel there in Jerusalem. Uh, 
Then God establishes a covenant with David. Uh, what the Bible usually refers to as the Davidic covenant. Um, if you want to turn to 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to read 10 through 17 with you. Again, 2 Samuel 7, 10 through 17. Uh, we see a bit of the Davidic covenant. I'm not going to read all of it, but this is the important stuff for our, uh, our scripture today. Starting in verse 10, he says, uh, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father, and he shall be a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan was a prophet, and he, prophet, and he was delivering this covenant to David from God. And so basically what uh, Nathan is relaying to David is, hey, that covenant that you know that God made with Abraham, you're a part of it. It is yours. It is your families. It is the uh, people that come from you. You're a part of this, this Abrahamic line. You're a part of that same covenant I made with Abraham. And uh, you saw the benefits in there. He will be forgiven of his iniquities. He won't be uh, displaced and removed from God's presence the way Saul was. Uh, there will come a time where there will not be violence. Uh, and there will not be uh, fear that uh, lives amongst his people. Uh, they will have their own place. And they will be uh, able to lie down in peace and in rest. So David's uh, kingdom is going fairly well, but then uh, David sort of rests on his laurels, and instead uh, he sins. Instead of going out and leading his army, he stays home. He then commits his sexual sin, and uh, that sexual sin and uh, the sin of not leading as he was supposed to brings chaos into his family. And so uh, ultimately what happens is he has one son, Ammon, who uh, rapes his daughter, Tamar, uh, he, f- he fails to, in his uh, son Absalom's eyes, to do anything in response to that. And so Absalom ends up killing his brother Amon. And then he uh, goes away for a few years, uh, and he comes back with a disingenuous plea uh, for forgiveness from David and to help his father lead. Um, while he was there, he was truly working to overthrow David and to secure the crown for himself. Ultimately, Absalom succeeds. He, himself, he declares himself king. David had to run into the wilderness to flee for his life. And uh, he's being uh, disposed of as king. And there is literally an army after him seeking to capture and kill him. And this is David's prayer in light of what has happened. 
So while the title brings a reminder of the king's personal grief, the, the chaos that has become his family, his son overthrowing him, um, we see actually in the psalm itself some issues that are more on his heart here in the psalm. So the first two verses we see first this rising tide of disloyalty that he's facing. Um, and so in verse 1 we saw, And Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. And in 2 Samuel 15, 13, uh, David was told a, a messenger had came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone with Absalom, so his son. So his, his, uh, the people of Israel are turning towards Absalom and away from him, and so he is losing his community. He is losing his kingdom. He is losing his ministry to a certain extent. Um, and then perhaps even more important, there's this rumor, there's this uh, thought that David has, is suffering the same way that Saul had suffered, and that, that being that God has removed himself from fellowship with David, that God has separated himself from David. And so we see in verse 2 of our scripture, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation of him in God. And we see in response, uh, David saying in 2 Samuel, 2, or 2 Samuel 15, 25, then the king said to Zedek, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. And so we see in, in both David speaking of this idea that is spread throughout Israel that God has removed himself from David's presence, that God is, David is no longer anointed, David is no longer uh, a, a servant of God, that David is the same as Saul. Then lastly, we see at the end, very end of this prayer, uh, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessings be on your people. And so David is thinking of the precarious state that he sees Israel in as they have turned from him and started to follow Absalom. Um, in those first two verses, we kind of see two ideas, two different ideas of what we might call fear and anxiety, um, or we might call two types of different fear or two types of different anxiety. I don't see a biblical reason to make a distinction, but um, I think it's somewhat helpful just for the purposes of today um, to talk about them and the idea of one is fear and one is anxiety. And so in the first instance, uh, that first verse, this fear of people turning on him, people pursuing him, people trying to kill him, to take away his kingdom. So there's this immediate recognition of bad things that could happen to him and what many would call fear. And then the second, sort of this changing of his identity in people's eyes that might make himself question his identity. Is he a king? Is he one of God's servants? Is he still being used by God? Is he still in relationship with God? A, a psychologist uh, a few decades back named Rollo May um, tried to show uh, through this um, story the distinction that he made between fear and anxiety, and this is what he says. If you're walking across a highway and see a car speeding towards you, your heart beats faster. You focus your eyes on the distance between the car and you and how far you have to go to get to the safe side of the road, and you hurry across. You felt fear. After the car, cars have sped by, you may be aware of a slight faintness and a feeling of hollowness in the pit of your stomach. 
This is anxiety. Anxiety is what you feel when our existence is, our existence as selves is threatened. And so he's trying to make this distinction. So I, I see an immediate um, thing that could rob me of something valuable. And in this case, perhaps my life, my well-being, my health. Um, and I know this fear. I know exactly what it is. I know exactly what the cause is. I know what to do to remove myself from this place of fear. Uh, or from this thing that could harm me, I should say, because that the fear that has shown me these things. But then we have after that something much deeper than that, and that is it makes us question just the reality of ourselves, this feeling uh, when our existence as selves is threatened. And so th- there's not necessarily an immediate threat. There's nothing I can look to right now and say, this could harm me. This is what I know I need to do. This is, I, this is what I know will happen to me if I don't do this. But there is just this, this thing in our, our hearts and our minds that's weighing us, that's, that's making us question ourself, that's question, that makes us question our existence. And he calls that anxiety. Um, on Reddit, there's a, an entire page called Dad Reflexes. Um, some of you may have seen these videos or or just or gifts, however you prefer, um, on the internet. Um, it's basically kids falling, kids falling off of something, and dad quickly catching or saving the child in some way. And so, while dads um, might not be the best at before the child is in a position of harm, using fear to not put them in positions of harm. They tend to be quite good at recognizing when something is happening right now that could harm my child, and they respond quickly, decisively, immediately, and act in a way that saves the child from harm. Moms, on the other hand, are usually better at recognizing and not putting their, uh, their children in positions of harm. But in both cases, fear has taught them, I need to act in certain ways to make sure something that is valuable to me stays safe. And so there is a healthy fear. Fear can be healthy. We have a specific threat. You identify something good that's threatened, the life of your child, your own life, something of great value to you. You see an immediate response that is needed. Then uh, the fear helps you to summon up all of your deepest capacities, your abilities to do something to protect the thing that you know is so important. Fear is specific. It's constructive. It gets you together. It galvanizes you to action. It's good for you. It's great to a certain extent. Anxiety, he would argue, is different. So f- anxiety, unlike fear, is not specific. It's not, it's, it's, it's more diffused, it's generalized, it's sort of amorphous, it's unidentified. Um, you don't know what's going on, you don't know what it's attached to, you don't know why it's here, you don't know what exactly is causing it. Um, you just know that there's something there that you're uncomfortable with, something there that worries you. So there's not a car coming at you. There's not a child falling. But you have this anxiety. You don't know exactly what's going on. 
I think to a certain extent, extreme scares tend to make us examine and see our lives in ways that we don't normally do. Um, when we think about things that are important to us, what we have, it, it makes us think about what things are important to us. It makes us think about what we've done, what we want to do. We think about what life would be like if we lost that valuable thing um, or if we lost the ability to get that valuable thing. Um, which leads us to consider how valuable those things really are or have been to us. It pushes us in reality to examine our life. And what it does is it causes us to see our emptiness. That is the reality of our life apart from God. It pushes it to the front of our minds in ways that doesn't happen in just normal everyday life sometimes. Our insecurities rise. Our shame, our guilt are magnified. There's no immediate threat, but there's a more real view of ourself and of our lives, of our unfulfilled, our unfulfilled reality apart from God. The guilt and shame that are always present because of our disobedience. And so that anxiety can rise in situations like that. But that anxiety is always a part of who we are because our separation from God is always a part of who we are when we are separated from him. This causes a bunch of different things in, uh, in our lives. First, what it causes is um, it makes us sometimes unable to act. It causes us to freeze up. We just don't know what to do. We have no idea how to move forward. So unlike fear, that we can recognize a clear threat we recognize what exactly would happen if we don't respond to the threat, and we recognize exactly what we need to do in response to the threat. Anxiety can, opposite, anxiety can make us function the exact opposite way than that. Sometimes we actually act in ways, in a bunch of different ways, and we really don't know why the heck we're doing any of this. We're so consumed by our anxiety, we just start grabbing onto anything in an attempt to get out of it. It can cause physical ailments, ulcers, high blood pressure, heart disease, asthma, obesity, diabetes, headaches, depression, gastrointestinal problems, and Alzheimer's disease have all been tied to stress to some extent or another by the medical community. This causes a bunch of different things in our lives. Low energy, upset stomachs, diarrhea, constipation, nausea, aches, pains, tense muscles, chest pain, rapid heartbeat, insomnia, frequent colds, infections. All of these things can come about because of these medical conditions and the stress, the anxiety that can be a part of our everyday life. can also cause us an inability to trust or to receive help from people that could help us. Along with that, a struggle to have healthy relationships or relationships at all above any point of, of uh, the surface. Or below the surface, I should say. Everything is surface. We are always guarded. We're always keeping back. We're always holding back. We're never giving ourselves in relationship. We're always afraid. We're always, we have no idea why, but we're always uh, guarded. And so uh, David, and I, I, we, like, almost all of this psalm is David praying very well. But what I don't want you to think is because, because of that, in those first two prayers, David was somewhat dismissively saying what was going on in his life. 
This was not David saying, yeah, there's some people that are after me, and yeah, they've questioned me, but I know everything is great. David is really crying out to God in this psalm. David recognizes all of the possibilities that could go very wrong for him, very wrong for the people he cares about, that has gone very wrong in his family and in him already. And there is a deep mourning in David's prayer here. We'll see uh, that more in depth as we, we come to it. But uh, this, is, this is not David starting a prayer in a great position. He quickly gets there, but please don't, because he does that, dismiss the deepness of his mourning and the sorrow of those first two verses. But we do see in verses 3 to 4 him relying on God's divine perfection. And so he prays, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Shield about me, uh, the NIV translated, "Are you, you are a shield around me. The uh, New English Bible translates it as the shield to cover me. Um, we've all seen different types of shields throughout history. If you go to the art museum, you can see a bunch of armor that they have um, and shields that they have. And so um, this would be more in line with like a full suit of armor or, if you will, um, like the shields that riot cops have when they're marching in one towards uh, some kind of chaos giant full body shields and so what David is saying here is that it, even though I am in this position now and I don't necessarily expect you to remove me from this position now I know because of the covenant you've made with me my future reality is you as my complete shield my future The future of my family, of my people, is a community, a kingdom to which all fear, all pain is removed. And I know that you are my shield in bringing me from here to there eventually. And he says uh, that God is his glory. Um, a lot of commentaries say this is an expression for us to ponder, for us to consider. It indicates an honor of serving such a master um, to reflect on the radiance that he imparts. Um, but it, it's certainly uh, used here in a comparison to the un- unimportance of earthly esteem, so it's always tr- which is always transient and fickle. And so here was David, right? David was anointed by God to come and lead Israel out of the, the mess that was caused by Saul and Israel's disobedience. And God did amazing, glorious things through him. Defeating giants, military victories, leading Israel to be where they're supposed to be, bringing a certain amount of peace and establishing a certain amount of order to the uh, kingdom that had not existed beforehand. And now he's being completely rejected almost by them. His family is in chaos. Some of them have turned against him. Some of them are questioning if he even is in line with God, in relationship with God at this point. And he says to God, I know that 
this world doesn't look to me as something glorious right now. Bible, in the Bible, glory means something of weight, something of import. And David says, look, earthly, I don't necessarily have a lot of people who think I'm of import. I'm of weight in this world. But you are what make me valuable. You are what gives me import. You are what gives me weight in this world. And so I can lift my head up. Because it's not about my failures that led to me to where I'm at now. It's not about how people perceive me where I'm at right now. It's about you. And so you lift up my head, as he says after that. And so when David, uh, in, verse, uh, in chapter 50, this is what we, uh, 15 from Second uh, Samuel, in verse 30, this is what we're told about David. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefooted with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went. So again, understand where David was coming from in those first two verses. It was a place of mourning, deep mourning, of weeping. But when he directed his eyes to God and he understood where his glory came from, it lifted his head up. God lifts up his head. Um, I can't uh, escape the idea that uh, um, when he says in uh, verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from, this, from his holy hill, that he has a picture of Genesis 15 in it. Um, I've, I've talked about this story before, but I, th- I think it... It hearken, David hearkens back to it uh, in his prayer. In Genesis 15, Abraham is going through some uh, places of doubt. He's not sure exactly what's going on. And uh, he receives the word from God in verse 1 of 15. He says, And this, the word of the Lord, came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. In other words, I am your shield. I am your very great value. I am your glory. I am the thing of worth to which you need. So David would have read the writings uh, about Abraham. He would have known who Abraham was. Uh, The covenant to which he was given was the covenant to which was given to Abraham. I, I can't think that he is not thinking back to Abraham when Abraham in verse 8 of that chapter says, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? How can I know that you will be my shield? How can I know that your worth will be my worth, that your glory will be my glory? So this is what God tells Abraham. He tells him, go get some animals and cut them up. So in that uh, culture at that time, when people made covenant with each other, when they made a commitment to each other, they didn't sign contracts. What they did was, is they would take some animals, and they would cut them up, and then they would walk through them. And what they were saying to each other was, look, my word to you is, I'm going to do this, and if I don't, may I become like the animals that I'm walking in now. May I be cut up. May I be destroyed as they are. May I become the food of the vultures as they are. 
Now, what Abraham was expecting probably was for him to cut those up and then God to ask him to walk through them. But that's not what happens. Abraham, uh, as darkness falls, sees a light that starts moving a bit amongst the cut up animals. And uh, what Abraham knows is this is an image of God. And this is God saying to Abraham, I'm making, I'm reaffirming my covenant with you. I'm making a covenant with you. If I don't fulfill to you uh, the promise of being your shield, of being your glory, of your reward, uh, then uh, I deserve to be cut up. Cut me up. The reality is, is that um, we have no ability to keep our covenant with God as similar as David did. David had already broken covenant with God. David, at this point, had already sinned in so many different ways. And he is hearkening back to this idea because he knows God's promise. He might know exactly how God's promise will be fulfilled, but he knows God walked amongst the cut-up animals with the promise that he will forgive, that he is still um, in relationship with God. And so how does God do this? Well, God ultimately says, you all are broken. You all are sinners. You all have disobeyed me. You all are guilty and conscious, anxiety-ridden, empty apart from me, completely selfish in your pursuit to be out of your current circumstances, to be out of your current state of mind, your current state of self, but I will take the consequences of your actions, of your decisions, your rejection of me on myself. I will be cut up. I will be nailed to a cross. I will be whipped. I will be spit upon. I will be mocked as you deserve to be so that you can have the glory that only I deserve. And this is why David, in verse 5, says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Notice David doesn't say, my anxiety overcame me and I fell asleep. I was so weary from my fears, from my guilt, from my shame, so emotionally drained, I fell asleep. David said, I went to sleep and I woke up because you sustained me. He rested. And for many of us, rest is a foreign concept because of our anxiety, our fears. We are consumed with the thousands that David prays about. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Not because David was certain he couldn't be killed by any one of them or harmed by any one of them, but because he had a covenant with the God who walks among the, amongst the cut-up animals that he knew he can trust. That he knew will be fulfilled. That his future place in history, in his history, will be that place that was promised to him in Second Samuel 7. David knew the covenant would be kept by God and he knew his future and the future that would be his family, his Christian family, the church, as we call it today. And so David moves from that peace of mind to uh, victory and, and a prayer for the blessings of his people. And so he says, Arise, O Lord, 
Save me, my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. See, for David, refuge and a shield were not enough. It was not alone his hope. God's victory was his ultimate hope. And so he knew, again, that that shield was not just a brief change of his circumstances here. His victory was God fulfilling his covenant with him. That even in the midst of his circumstances here, God is building towards that covenant promise fulfilled. That God is using him to bring people to know that covenant promise fulfilled. God is using him to lead people to himself and out of their fears and anxieties and into his peace, into his place of rest. Verse 8 attests to the basic humility behind David's prayer as well. It recognizes that without the Lord, there is no solution or success. That there is none worth having apart from him. So we ask for no victories that are not his. For no changes of circumstances that, don't, uh, uh, that he doesn't want us to have. We don't ask for God to do something that is not a part of him bringing forth his covenant, his glory to this world. That's not to say we can't verbally ask God for something, but we can't demand of God it. We can certainly pray that God changes circumstances here, but our deeper prayer, our more important prayer, is God, use me to bring forth your glory in the circumstances that you desire for me and for this world so that people can be led out of their anxiety, out of their fear, into your glory, into their peace. And so we, ha- we have this prayer that David, one, he's very real in his emotions at the beginning of this prayer. And we see it as he's weeping, as we're told in, in 2 Samuel. And so, one, take your emotions, take your ideas, your realities about yourself to God. Don't feel like you cannot be real with God. God wants you to come to him. He wants you to come to him where you're at. Now, when I say God wants you to come to him where you're at, that doesn't mean you want to come to God and demand of him what you want. It means you go to him with how you're feeling, with what's going on in your life, with being real to him, expecting him to lead you in the ways he needs to lead you. And it means, you know, when you go to God with where you're at and you can't see his goodness, you can't see his glory, you need to not just go to God in prayer, but you need to come to your church. You need to come to your friends in the church. You need to come to your friends in Christ and say, I am struggling to go from where David was in verses 1 and 2 to David, where David is in verses 3 and 4 and onward. Help me. Pray for me. Counsel me. 
show me his word and the ways. I need to see it so that I can pray as David prayed. I can rest as David rested. And then, and only then, can we come to the world as he comes in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Verses 1 and 2, he says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Me, me, me. Here's what's going on with me. And then when he directs his eyes to God, may you give blessings to your people. In his famous prayer of repentance, he says, Lord, return to me the joy of my salvation so then I can teach people your ways. We are not good servants. We are not good people who can, we're not good at loving people when we are people of of fear and anxiety. We need God's glory to heal us in order for us to be the people who can think about being blessings and having blessings go to other people. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are people who are hurt and broken because of the things of this world, but mostly because of our own disobedience and sins and the guilt and the shame that follows. And we, we have no idea in and of ourselves how to fix ourselves. We have no ability to fix ourselves. And so we are people who have fear and anxiety that are just a regular part of our life. But we know that's not your desire. And we know that you went to the lengths of dying so that we don't have to live in that way. We don't have to have our life shaped by those things. We can have our life shaped by your rest and your peace. Help us to know the promise of that covenant, to rest in it. Speak to us, guide us, counsel us. Use your church to do those things. Spirit, do those things. We, we need you to move out of our anxieties and our fears and into that place of rest so that we can love and serve as you designed us to do and we deeply want to do. In your name we pray. Amen.